Welcome to the Weekly Sermons Podcast of the United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. We are a church with a vision to be used by God to change lives, strengthen churches, and transform the world. We are on a journey to know, love, and serve God. We pray that this week's sermon blesses you and that you feel God's presence through it today. Hello, my name is Lydia Kim, and I'm one of your pastors of Connection and Care. As we celebrate Veterans Day this weekend, I'd like to welcome Colonel Scott Weaver, who will be reading scripture for us today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Scott Weaver. I served in the United States Army on active duty for 29 and a half years. My wife, Brogan, also served in the military, and between the two of us, we have over 56 years of federal service. We've worshiped with the Church of the Resurrection since really 2010. We've worshiped with, with CORE in Iraq, in Pennsylvania, and in Texas. And it's a delight to be here today and be able to share this on Veterans Day. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of scripture. Our first passage today is from Acts chapter 13. In Antioch, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul to the work I have called them to undertake. After they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on these two and sent them off. And from Romans chapter one, from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news. To those in Rome who are dearly loved by God and called to be God's people. And from Ephesians chapter four, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you have received from God. Back in 1974, American historian, broadcaster, and Pulitzer Prize winning author, Studs Terkel, undertook a project. He wanted to interview 100 working people, and he wanted to reflect upon their lives in a book he would call Working. And after reflecting upon the interviews and people's experiences with their jobs and with life and what they yearn for in life, he had this to say. He said, I think most of us are looking for a calling, not a job. Most of us, like the assembly line worker, have jobs that are too small for our spirit. Jobs are not big enough for people. I wonder if you've found your calling. So today we want to talk about calling. We want to talk about the Apostle Paul and his calling. And, and several years ago, 2014 actually, I wrote a book on the life of Paul called The Call. And in that book, I use this title, The Call, which is what we're using for the sermon series, because it captures so well how Paul thought of his, of his own life. He talked about being called 30 times in his letters. He talked about that regarding himself. He talked about that regarding Christians, that they were called, that there was a calling on our lives. And if you look at his letters, starting with Romans 1, the first of his letters uh, in the New Testament, uh, at least in order in the New Testament, the first one, he writes this, from Paul, this is how he begins, from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. That's how he saw himself. I'm called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news. Now look down at verses six and seven. He's describing the Gentiles that, that, are, uh, that are the people that he's been sent to. He says, you who are called by Jesus Christ are also included in these Gentiles, among these Gentiles, to those in Rome who are dearly loved by God and called to be God's people. I mean, this is how he thought of things. You're called by God. There's something bigger going on. It's not just your choice. God is beckoning you, calling you, inviting you, summoning you. And, and that's what the word call actually means. It, it comes from the Greek. Kaleo is the word that he uses. And we have our word call from that. It means to call, to beckon, to summons, to invite. I want to ask you once more. Have you found your calling? Do you sense 
a calling, something bigger that's calling you, propelling you, beckoning you, summoning you, summoning you. And, and have you heard God's call on your life? All right. So Paul, from, uh, from about AD 48 or 49 to AD 57, travels on three missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts. So it's an eight or nine year period of time. During that period, he's going to travel 10,000 miles in pursuit of this call. His call, he felt, was not only to follow Jesus. That's the primary call for all Christians is to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, come follow me. That was the invitation, and I'll make you fishers of people. So, uh, so Paul is following Jesus, but he's also following the call God gave him at his conversion to take the gospel into the world. This happens again, 48 to 49, somewhere in there, uh, up, to age 50, or up to 57, so uh, year 57. And so for that nine-year period, he travels 10,000 miles. 10,000 miles, I want you to think about that. And most of that on his two feet, not on a ship, about 2,000 miles maybe on a ship. The rest of it was on his own two feet across the Roman uh, roads of the Roman Empire. Now, last week we left Paul at his conversion. He was converted around age 21. And, uh, and what happens after his conversion? He travels, uh, he travels to Arabia. The Roman province of Arabia included most of t- modern-day Jordan and, uh, and the Sinai Peninsula, part of Egypt today. And I think he might have gone down to Mount Sinai where Moses, uh, where Moses received the law. The mountain of God, it's called. Elijah went there too to hear the still small voice of God. Moses heard God speaking there, and I think he might have gone there trying to reflect upon everything he knew about the law. He was a, he was a great student of the law, and now he's trying to make sense of it in the light of his experience with Jesus, his conversion, and his call. I think he took, well, he took three years, the scripture says. It's pretty much a silent time. I think he's working on his master's degree. A master of divinity degree takes three years. I think he's spending three years reflecting upon the law, working out his theology, trying to listen for the voice of Christ. So after those three years, he's 24 years old. He goes back to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, uh, he tries to, to share his story, and there are people who are afraid. They're not certain about him. And, uh, and there is a man named Barnabas, who is one of the disciples there, not one of the 12 disciples, but one of the disciples there, who believes in Saul and encourages him. Remember, he's Saul. That's his Hebrew name, Paul, his, his Roman name. He encourages Saul. He vouches for him. And, uh, and then after, after less than a year, uh, there are some in Jerusalem that want to kill him. And so the believers put him on a ship and send him back home to Tarsus. That's his hometown. And he's going to spend the next 11 years, maybe 14, depending on how we read Galatians 2, 1, the next 11 years in his hometown, probably living with his parents, working for them, making tents. So I want to think about this. And I want to think about the fact that it was Barnabas who encourages him, cares for him, vouches for him, and sends him on that ship. Now, by the end of that period of time, so the story picks up, it really is silent. There's hardly anything said about what happens during these 14 years. But Paul has gone from being 21 years old at his conversion, and now he's 35 years old. Or if we read uh, Galatians 2.1 a bit differently, he's 38 years old or maybe 39 years old. And it's, a, it's this period where, where there's waiting, where there's nothing that's happening, there's seemingly nothing that's happening. And I mention this because one of the leadership lessons we learn in life and spiritual lessons we learn in this story and in the Bible is that sometimes God gives us a vision, we'll have a vision or a dream, and there's a long period of time before that vi- vision or dream is realized. Moses, it's 40 years from the time he sees the burning bush until he leads the children into the promised land. Joseph of the amazing Technicolor dream coat. He has these dreams as a young man of what God is going to do with him. And then he's sold into slavery and he's, a, he's in prison before those dreams are finally realized. And David, who's told by Samuel that he's going to be the next king of Israel, but it's a decade or two before David actually becomes king. And I don't know what these, you know, these periods, these lulls look like for you, but I'm guessing for many of you, there was a period between you know, when you felt called and when you finally got to see the calling realized in your life, and you don't give up during those period of time, 
And that's exactly what we find with the Apostle Paul. This week, I was working on the sermon at the kitchen table. I've been getting up really early in the morning since our travels, and five o'clock, four o'clock, and I'm sitting there at the kitchen table working, and finally at seven o'clock, working on this sermon, Lavon comes in, she turns on the TV, and the night before was the Country Music Awards. And, uh, and I couldn't help but watch as they were hi- highlighting or recapping what happened at the CMA Awards. And, and they talked about the new artist of the year. The new artist of the year is a guy you may have heard of. His name's Jelly Roll. Now, Jelly Roll's 39 years old. He's about the age of the Apostle Paul when Paul finally begins to get working on that vision God gave him when he was 21. So Jelly Roll was in prison when he was 14 years old. His first child was born while he was in prison. Yet he gets out, he's got, he gets his GED, decides to try to straighten his life up. He has this dream of being a singer. And finally, at the age of 39, he wins the New Artist of the Year Award. I loved it. They showed a bit of the clip of his acceptance speech. I had to watch the rest of it, and so I looked it up, and I thought you might enjoy hearing a bit of what he said, because he got to preaching while he's standing there receiving that award. Take a listen. There is something poetic about a 39-year-old man winning New Artist of the Year. I don't know where you're at in your life or what you're going through, but I want to tell you to keep going, baby. I want to tell you success is on the other side of it. I want to tell you it's going to be okay. I want to tell you that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror for a reason, because what's in front of you is so much more important than what's behind you. Let's party, Nashville! I don't know if you could understand all that, but you know what? It fired the people up there in that audience because he's saying, stop looking in the rear view mirror and start looking ahead in the in the front view, you know, front window of your car. Look ahead and not looking behind. You build on what's behind, but you look ahead and amazing things can happen. He's 39 years old and he thinks back to where he was when he was 14. And in some ways, that's Paul's story here. So you don't give up on the visions and dreams during those long lull periods as Paul had when he was making tents, living with his parents for 11 or maybe 14 years. All right, one other thing I want to see before we look at where Paul went on his first missionary journey is the role of Barnabas in his life. So again, Joseph, Barnabas, he's named by the apostles, son of encouragement. Were it not for Barnabas, the disciples would not have accepted Paul in Jerusalem. Barnabas took the time to listen to him, took the time to encourage him, took the time to vouch for him, took the time to put him on a ship to, so that he could be safe back up in Tarsus. When Barnabas comes to Antioch, and he finds that there's you know, all of these Gentile believers in Antioch and, and the disciples have sent him there to teach them and to sort of order the church. He has in mind, hey, wait, I know a guy who's in Tarsus who God called to work with the Gentiles. I should go get him and have him come and help me. And Barnabas travels over to Tarsus and he gives Saul, Paul, his first job. Let me just show you on the map uh, where these places are. So Barnabas travels from Jerusalem to Antioch, uh, and there he travels from Antioch to Tarsus, and he brings Paul from Tarsus back over to Antioch, and that becomes the journey that he makes to give Paul his first job. I love this. And so he's pouring into Paul. He's encouraging him. And actually, every time you hear uh, Barnabas and Paul mention the same breath in the book of Acts, up until halfway through the, the first missionary journey, it's always Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is the leader. Saul is the mentee. He's the one who's going to learn from Barnabas. So, uh, so we find this Paul would have never become Paul. I mean, the Paul that we know, the Apostle Paul, were not for Barnabas, were not for his encouragement. Paul would have never written the 13 letters of the New Testament that we have were it not for Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, we don't read much about him after this in the New Testament, but he certainly played a pivotal role as somebody who supported and encouraged Saul. Uh, I want to say this to you. Everybody needs a Barnabas. We all need more than one Barnabas. But you know what? Everybody needs to be a Barnabas too. I mean, this is, so if you're thinking about your calling, you're called to follow Jesus, you're also called to be a Barnabas. 
You were called to look and see who are the people that need encouragement and how are you going to encourage them? And I promise you, if you pay attention almost every day, you're going to run into somebody who needs to be encouraged. Would to God that you and I would be known as sons and daughters of encouragement. And so I want to encourage you to be an encourager of somebody else, to be somebody else's Barnabas. Now, here's what we find happens. They're worshiping in the church in Antioch. And in Acts 13, two through three, we read in Antioch, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul to the work I have called them to undertake. And they fasted and prayed. They laid their hands on these two and sent them off. I want you to notice that they feel this calling, this sense of you know, their next marching orders in the context of worship. There's something that happens when we gather together to sing and to pray, and to listen to scripture, and to listen to music, and to listen to the sermon. And I find when I'm in, I always have a notepad with me and pen so that I can take notes during worship because I often hear God speaking in the midst of worship. And that's how God spoke for uh, Barnabas and Saul. Send them off to the mission that I've called them to. So let me just show you uh, what happened in that very first missionary journey. So they're in Antioch, and uh, Barnabas leads Saul to go to Barnabas' own home country, which is Cyprus. And they come to Salamis. They travel across, uh, across Cyprus. They come to Paphos. Some really dramatic stories you can read in the book of Acts as to what happens there. Then they travel from here by ship, and they go to Perga. And from Perga, they go up to Pisidian Antioch in the highlands of, uh, of modern-day Turkey, or what was Asia Minor, Anatolia. And from Pisidian Antioch, they're going to travel over here to Lystra, Iconium, and to Derby. And in each one of those places, Paul is going to preach, and, and Paul finds his own voice now. And so Barnabas just steps back and watches. I mean, he's helping, but, but uh, and then from each of these places, they get chased out of town. They go from Derby back to, to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Pisidian Antioch, and then they take and sail uh, for Antioch. They return back to Syrian Antioch. So an amazing story of what happens. And from that time on, it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who's willing to let Paul have top billing, and his job is to encourage him. There comes a certain point in your life at a certain age where you realize, hey, you know what? It's time for me to encourage other people. It's no longer about the advancement of my career, but how do I give away what I learned? And that's what Barnabas is doing with Saul. All right, so that's the first missionary journey. They embark somewhere around 49, maybe 48, but probably 49 and 50. They return in 50. And Paul writes his first letter in the New Testament, probably the first document written in the New Testament is the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. Those areas, there's no city called Galatia. Galatia is a region where Lystra, Iconium, Derby are all in that area, or one borderlines that area. Same thing with Pisidian Antioch. They borderline the area or are in the region of Galatia. So the letter to the Galatians is written to a bunch of churches, several churches, at least three, probably four, in what is today central Turkey. All right, so after this, Paul uh, Paul goes back to Antioch, and uh, and at this point, there is a conversation in Jerusalem about, uh, about the Gentiles coming to faith. And there's some differences in the church as to how they look at this. Do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Do they need to obey all the law or not? Paul and Barnabas testify that they don't. Uh, Peter agrees they don't. Some other Jew, Jewish Christians are saying, no, they have to do these things. I want you to imagine this weekend is Coffee with the Pastors where people are invited to join Church of the Resurrection. You can join us online or in person at any of our locations. And we walk through, you know, here's what it means to be a United Methodist. Here's what it means to be a Christian. It's a very inspiring time. And then uh, at the end, we have our membership vows. I want you to imagine if I said to people, so these Jewish Christians, some of them were saying, you have to be circumcised if you're a man. 
and obey the full law, all 623 laws in the Bible, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul says, no, that's not right. That's a deal killer for many of these people. That's not what God cares about. Baptism is really taking the place of circumcision. And we're following the Spirit leading us. We're following Jesus, and we're obeying the great commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. And, but we're not meant to follow all of those commandments, 613, not 623 commandments. And so, uh, so there's this great schism that's happening at this point about how they interpret Scripture, which is interesting because that's, of course, what's happening even in today's church, where there are debates about how we interpret Scripture and how we apply certain Scriptures to people's lives. In any case, uh, it's finally decided by the council in Jerusalem that, no, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. I started to mention Coffee with the Pastors. Imagine at Coffee with the Pastors, I said, you gentlemen, you can join Church of the Resurrection as long as you're circumcised, and if you haven't been, let's just take you over. We'll have a little procedure over here before you can join the church, and I suspect that might be a deal killer for a lot of our men as well, and so that isn't what we do. We call for people to be baptized if they've never been baptized before. And uh, so anyway, Paul then sets out. So he goes back to Antioch with this understanding that um, that we don't have to be, you know, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. And he now and, and Silas, another colleague, launch out on the second missionary journey. So let me just show you that second missionary journey. So Paul and Silas are going to take off from Antioch. They're going to travel through probably the Cilician Gates we learned about last week. They're going to come over and revisit the churches of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, so they're going to travel through here. And then they're going to travel up, and they're trying to figure out where to go next, and they feel like the Holy Spirit closes the door for them to go this way and this way. So they continue on this direction. And Paul has a dream one night, and as he's having that dream, he feels like there is a man from Macedonia over here who is saying to him, come over here. And so he gets on a ship the next day, and, and I want you to hear this. Often the call of God comes in the form of dreams, and at least sometimes in the form of dreams. That's what Paul had. And he makes his way over here. They come to what's the modern-day port of Kavala, and they go to Philippi. And this is where Paul is going to start the first church on Romans on, on uh, what is today European soil. Paul goes to the river, and at the river, he is inviting people to come to faith. We were there not long ago. It was a beautiful experience to be in Philippi, and we went to the river, the Zagactos River, and we remembered how God called Lydia how Lydia said yes to Jesus through Paul's preaching, and then how she was baptized in the Zagactos River. So there's a place where you can stand by the river and you can remember your baptisms. I thought you might enjoy seeing what people see when they go to the ruins of Philippi at the Zagactos River. Take a look. It was such a powerful experience for people. Many said that was one of their favorite experiences on the trip is being at that river where Lydia, a single mom, and her children were baptized in the same river that we remembered our baptism in. It was just a very cool, very sacred and holy experience. I'll share with you more of the ruins of Philippi in next week's sermon. But I want to show you what happens next. So Paul leaves Philippi. He's actually run out of town. Eventually, he's arrested, put in prison, and then uh, released. He goes to Thessalonica. After three weeks, he's beaten up in Thessalonica, or threatened to be beaten up, and they chase him out of town. He goes to Berea. After a few weeks, he leaves Berea, being chased out of town. He comes over here to the, to the uh, sea. I believe he comes to the sea. It's not clear in Scripture. And he takes a boat, and he's going to come all the way down here to Athens. 
And at Athens, he's going to have a chance to preach one of my favorite sermons in the book of Acts, Paul's sermons in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. You're going to have to read it this week. We don't have time to look at it, but it's a very powerful one. He speaks there. And, uh, and while he's in Athens, uh, he is, so he's invited to come and speak to the, to the leadership in Athens. And he does that at a place called Mars Hill. As he's sharing this message at Mars Hill, he does so. And then, uh, and then he leaves Athens. And when he leaves, uh, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that there's hardly anybody who becomes a convert. So I want to pause here for just a second. So Paul is often chased out of town. He often doesn't know what's going to be the result of the work that he's done. Um, But he gets to Athens, and and there we do know there's only a few people who come to faith, one of whom, Demetrius, becomes the first bishop of Athens down the road. And I was thinking about this and how, you know, as we measure success, Paul doesn't seem to be very successful in many of the places that he goes. And it reminded me of, of... uh, really a, a conversation I had with my senior pastor from when I was in high school. Phil Hollis was his name. He died a few years ago. I officiated at his funeral. He was somebody who meant a great deal to me. Uh, he was pastor of Faith Chapel Assembly of God, uh, not far from our church here in Leewood. And, uh, and the church that he pastored, it was the place where I came to know Christ. He helped me to give my life to Christ. He helped me to hear the call of God in my life, told me you know, that God had a calling on my life, that I was supposed to be a pastor. Let me preach. The very first time I ever preached was a sermon in that church. He took me to colleges. When my parents couldn't take me, he took me to colleges to, to check out colleges. He meant so much to me. And then years later, he left Faith Chapel. He never grew it beyond 150 to 200 people. He left Faith Chapel and he went to Topeka, Kansas and took over his father's church there. And it never grew beyond 150 to 200 people. And he would drive over once in a while on Sunday nights and worship with us. And uh, and one time we went out to dinner and he said to me, he said he was struggling with depression. He said, you know, I had all these dreams when I was young. And I dreamt of thousands of people who'd come to faith in Christ because of my ministry. And, and you know, I look at what you've done over here and I, it's like, you're living my dream, but, but I, you know, I never got to experience that. I, I, 150, 200 people, you know, who, who were in the churches that I pastored. And I said, Phil, can I just tell you, I don't think that dream was wrong. Like, had it not been for you, I would have never come to faith in Christ. Were it not for you, I never would have heard a call of God on my life. Were it not for you, I would have never started Church of the Resurrection. Every single person at Church of the Resurrection who's given their life to Christ and all the people who worship with us are here because of you. You made this happen in your ministry. It's just not the way you imagined it. And that's the way it was with Paul. He never pastored a church with more than 150 or 200 people, probably much smaller than that most of the time. But the ripple effect of what he did and the letters that he wrote would change the world. We have to measure success. We have to be able to see what success looks like. And it's not always the way we dreamt it would be. Sometimes it's in ways that we never anticipated in ways that we can't even see until we get to heaven, what God has done through us. All right, so that leads me to where Paul goes Where Paul goes next. He's going to go from Corinth to Athens. So he's going to take this little journey right over here. It's about uh, 54 miles to, to, uh, to Corinth. And as he's traveling to Corinth, uh, he's going to come across the Isthmian Peninsula, and he's going to come over here to the town of Corinth. I want you to notice, you can see this line here. This line is actually a canal that connects these two seas. This is the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea. And ships would come in here. And as they came in here, uh, this was the fastest way. So let me just go backwards. If you were, you were coming here, if you didn't do this, you would travel around the, uh, this part of Greece and you would come out the other side. This was one of the most dangerous parts of the sea to travel in. Ships were often wrecked there. Homer in the Odyssey talks about this. So instead, they would make their way to this isthmus between Corinth uh, and uh, and Athens, and and avoid passing through the Peloponnese. 
All right, so uh, so Paul uh, is uh, going to Corinth. And by the way, in the ancient world, they didn't have this canal. Instead, they had a, uh, a track that boats could be hoisted up onto uh, dollies, and the boats could pass across that. Pa- I think it was about seven or eight miles, and I think I've got a picture of it here. This is the uh, this is the channel through which boats would come up and be placed on dollies, and they would travel across this seven or eight miles, if I remember correctly. This gives you a chance to see what it looked like. Slaves pulling the boats, and if they didn't pull the boats, they would pull the cargo across, but it left the sailors with nothing to do for a day, and the sailors would go to Corinth. And in the ancient world, Corinth was known as a place of, uh, of riotous living, uh, a place where there was a lot, a sort of sin city, if you will. And uh, you think of that as maybe Las Vegas, no offense to those of you in Las Vegas, or, or you know, the French Quarter and certain portions of the French Quarter. Well, that's what Corinth was at the time. In fact, the word for immorality in the first century was Corinthianize or something like that. And, uh, and prostitutes were called Corinthian girls throughout the Roman Empire. That's how it was known. So Paul shows up in Corinth to preach the gospel here, and he starts in a synagogue. And when he's in the synagogue, there are people who start to come to faith, and then he's kicked out of the synagogue, and he starts a church right next door, and he stays there for 18 months. I thought you might enjoy seeing some of the film footage we have from Corinth. Take a look. So what you see here is the temple to Apollos. It stood there for hundreds of years before Paul arrived. Um, And in the background, you saw a moment ago, the hill that stood up, you can see it in the background here too, the hill, the Acro-Corinth. You see one of the main streets here in Corinth, the meat markets on the left, shops on the right. And Paul walked these streets. I mean, it's an amazing place. This is a a piece that was found by the archaeologist of the synagogue where Paul started and preached in. And so when you're standing there, you're standing among all of these stories that happened in the book of Acts. The Bema where Paul is drugged before, where they want to ask questions of these Christians, you know, and, and then in the background, you see, again, the Acrocorinth. At the top of the Acrocorinth was a temple to Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love, sensuality, sexuality. This is what remains. You can walk up the top. I did and took this picture. This is uh, the remains of the temple to Aphrodite in the top. The, the priestesses were prostitutes, and they would walk down this valley into the town. You can see where the road went back and forth across, the, across this valley here, going down into the town that's below. And they would come and offer themselves to the sailors for an offering to the goddess Aphrodite, and they mixed together sensuality and prostitution and, uh, and religion in Corinth. And so Paul is ministering there and preaching there, and you have a chance to see all of this as you look at Corinth. Now, Paul stayed there again 18 months, and while he stayed there, he's preaching and teaching the people. He's pastoring and shepherding them. He's going to visit there two or three more times. He's going to write four letters to Corinth, two of which we have, maybe three. Some think that a third letter is incorporated into First and Second Corinthians or Second Corinthians. But one of the things, we're going to find two things he preaches about there, and this is where I want to begin to wrap up our sermon. So if we think about being called, he's going to teach them about the calling to follow Christ. And one of the things that he's going to talk about there is the struggle that those Christians had in his letters, the struggle they had in avoiding sexual immorality. So the Greek word for sexual immorality in the New Testament in Paul's letters is porneo. And you recognize the word porneo. It's the base of our word pornography or porn. And so for many of these, it was a hyper-sexualized culture. The whole Roman Empire knew that about Corinth. And Paul's writing to them to say, look, follow Christ. You've been called to a holy life. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 5.1, everyone has heard that there is sexual immorality among you. He's having to address the church that he started. And he's just been there a year or two before this, a year before this. But he's having to address what he's already heard there. There's sexual immorality among you. Everybody knows about this. And then he says this, the body is meant not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Should I therefore take part of my body of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul speaks more about sexual immorality in the Corinthian correspondence than all of the rest of his letters combined because the people are struggling. These are Christians. They just had Paul as their pastor, and yet they're still struggling because this is the world they live in. And and we live in a similar hyper-sexualized culture and context, and it's hard to walk with Christ. It's hard to honor God with your body. But I wanted to remind you of this today. Paul, as a pastor, as a shepherd, is saying, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And you were bought with a price. Christ purchased you. And so don't live according to sexual immorality. You were called to live for something higher than that. You were called to glorify God in your secret thoughts and in your body. And I I share that with you as a shepherd who cares about you, that this is a common struggle for many people And God is calling us to live our lives, holy lives, even in this part of our lives, even in this part of the human condition. Now, the second major concern in Corinth, which I want you to notice, is found in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. And this is a major concern in Corinth. So again, Paul has shepherded this church, pastored them for 18 months, longer than he stayed anywhere else. He's often there for three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months. But here he's been there for 18 months, and yet he's hearing as he's, uh, he's in Ephesus, I believe, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, and he's hearing what's happening in his church, and he's getting reports back. So I want you to hear this. Now, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, again, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. Now, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. Instead, be restored with the same mind and the same purpose. My brothers and sisters, Chloe's people gave me some information about, the, about you that you are fighting with each other. Can you imagine that? Christians fighting? Christians being divided? Churches being divided? Of course we can imagine it because it still happens to this very day in all kinds of churches, conservative and liberal churches and everything in between. We find fighting, infighting, divisions in churches. And and this is the way it was from the very beginning, even when the apostle Paul was the pastor of the church. And part of what we find in Corinth is, is, you know, these divisions, they were uh, conflicts between what we would call liberals and conservatives between charismatics and non-charismatics, between Jews and Gentiles, slave and free people, between the rich and the poor, between those who loved Paul as their pastor and those who didn't like him very much, or at least didn't like him as well as Apollos or you know somebody else who'd come along to teach after he had left. They disagreed whether it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols and then was sold in the marketplace. Was that okay or not okay? And a whole host of other questions that they send to Paul uh, asking, help us because we're struggling, we're fighting within. And so this reminds me, you know, the divisions we see in our society, our culture. We had a, a, a Republican presidential candidate debate this last week. And, and, you know, they're all fighting with each other on the stage. These are people of the same party. And, and we struggle with divisions. And so Paul's going to try to help those early Christians to remember something really important, to remember part of their call as they deal with the divisions in their own church. And that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. I can tell you, 1 Corinthians 13 is read at a lot of weddings, and it's a great passage for weddings. In fact, while we were in Corinth, we had people gather together. I, I, there were two different groups I had there. The first one had 450 people. And with those who were married, and if they wanted to renew their vows, you know, I led them through that. I think there was, I don't know, 300 of them who I renewed their vows uh, in Corinth on the first time I was there. And the second time I was there, there was about 250 of our resurrection folks and had a beautiful time inviting them to renew their wedding vows. And it was fun. I had some of them say to me, you know, I didn't think that was, I wasn't even sure I was going to do it. I didn't think it was any big deal. And then I found myself crying while we were standing there, remembering in this place where Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the call we had, listen, the call we had to love and to cherish one another 
until we were parted by death. I mean, this idea of calling extends to almost every part of our lives, including marriage, if you're married. It's a calling, a sacred calling. So uh, I want to remind you as we close of Paul's words to the Corinthians. Now, these words weren't written for a wedding ceremony. They were written to a church that was divided. They were written to a community that was divided. They were written to America today, and we are hyper-divided. 63% of people in America, or a little more than that, claim to be Christians. Terrific. Well, let's remember these words that Paul wrote to a people that were divided, Christians who were divided. And so I'd love to invite you to read these words with me as they appear on the screen. Paul wrote to these divided Christians, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all, that of, all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then I just want to remind you of a little something I learned when I was a teenager, that if you really want to test yourself on this, wherever you find the word love, whenever you say the word love in just a moment, you might say your own name and just see how you measure up to what Paul said the Christian calling is. So let's say it together. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. You remember, of course, that love is the, is the primary Christian ethic. Throughout the entire New Testament, every book of the New Testament, Jesus says, this is how they will know you're my disciples. That word love, agape, is selfless serving somebody else. It's seeking the best of them. It's encouraging them. It's being a Barnabas for them. It's seeking to lift them up and putting their needs before your own needs. And in the process of doing that, if you do that, if two people live that in a marriage context, it's hard to mess it up. If friends live this out, if you do this in, in, you know, with employees that you have, it's hard for people not to want to be around you and have you working with them or for them or be their supervisor when you're actually practicing love. In politics, what happens if we actually practice love in the midst of conflict? How has the world changed? I want to ask you, does this look like your life? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you avoiding being envious or boastful or arrogant or rude? Do you insist on your own way? Are you, uh, are you one who is irritable and resentful? Do you rejoice in bad things happening to other people? Or do you rejoice in the truth? Are you willing to bear up, to put up with people? Now, I'm not saying put up with abuse. I'm just saying to be patient with people and graceful towards people. If you're willing to do that, if you're living that, at least this is the vision. It's the calling. And here's the thing. You have a calling. This is what God is calling us to be and to do. And we may not perfectly live into the call, but at least we know what the calling is. And we begin to pray, Lord, help me to live this. I want to remind you of that Studs Terkel quote we began with. I think most of us are looking for a calling, not a job. Most of us, like the assembly line worker, have jobs that are too small for our spirit. Jobs are not big enough for people but a calling. That's what we're looking for. And Paul understood his entire life is a response to God's call. And I wonder if you might as well. 
if you might wake up every morning and remember that you were called to follow Jesus, you were called to be an encourager, you were called to be holy, to live a life that's pleasing to God in your body and in your secret thoughts, if you might remember that you were called to practice agape towards other people, and if you do that, I think you will find that your calling fills you with joy and life. And even when it's hard, even when there's periods that you're not seeing the fruit that you were expecting, God is still going to use you in small ways and great when you live your life in response to the call. Would you pray with me? Oh God, help us to hear your call. And in fact, we've already heard much of your call today in these scriptures. So help us to respond, to be able to say to you every day, here I am, Lord. Use me. Forgive us for the ways that we have failed to live into our call in our relationships, in our marriages, in our, in our uh, workaday relationships, in our families. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the times we don't live that life of love, the times that we're not encouraging, the times that we're selfish, not selfless. Forgive us, O oh God. And help us to be more the people you want us to be tomorrow than we were yesterday. O oh Lord, help us to hear your call each day to not grow weary in those times that we're waiting. Help us to be Barnabases for others. Help us to love. In your holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you're able to join us next week. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, visit us online at core.org. That's C-O-R dot O-R-G.